Good morning. It's great to see you guys. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, for those who don't recognize my face. Uh, and I just want to say a big welcome to Grace West Falls Church Campus. Great to see you guys this morning. And uh, those who are with us online, uh, welcome as well. Um, we are in the midst of a series called Trust Issues. And um, I actually need your help with something. I need you to trust me on something this morning, because I, I need a little bit of uh, very light participation. But why I need you to trust me is because I need you to trust me if you raise your hand, and West Falls Church online, go ahead and do this too, okay? If you raise your hand, you just got to trust me that I won't call on you, and there's nothing embarrassing about this, all right, whether you raise your hand or whether you don't. I just need you to be prepared to, because I've been extremely curious about something. And what I've been curious about is... Um, So we're 63 days into 2018. It's been 63 days since many of us made a New Year's resolution. So I just want you to think about that for a second. Did you make a resolution? Can you even remember what your resolution is at this point? And so what I want you to do is think about if you made that resolution, and it doesn't have to mean that you've stuck with it every second, that you've never had uh, issues, or that you've had setbacks, but um, are you still at it? Did you make a resolution and you're still at it? Could you just raise your hand? Raise your hand if you made a resolution and you are still at it. Raise your hand nice and high just for a second. West Falls Church Online, do it too. Okay. All right. You know what? It's interesting. It's very interesting. So I had this suspicion that even though uh, what, what the surveys say across national averages for resolutions is that, this, is that it's abysmal in terms of how we, we keep them, I figured we were in the upper echelon of society here in Washington, D.C., and I thought we would just smash, smash the number. Uh, but unfortunately, I think we're right around the average. So um, what my research has done, and, and this has been all just, you know, internet research, so just bear with me. But what I've found is about 8%, 8% of, of resolutions we actually stick with. And so it just begs the question, why is that? Why is it that only 8% of New Year's resolutions were we actually able to keep? And I think the reason is actually pretty simple. It's because they're hard. It's hard to keep your New Year's resolution, right? I mean, it is, it's hard when that alarm goes off an hour earlier in the morning because you resolve to exercise more and you resolve to hit the gym, man, you're just tired. That alarm goes off and that snooze button is as big as it's ever been. You just bam. It's hard when there's that plate of brownies in the break room at work or maybe there's a plate of brownies in your kitchen somewhere. When you walk by, not to hear that brownie, because you know it actually talks to you, right? It's the weirdest thing. They, they actually talk. It's, it's just hard, because if you think about it, by definition, what is a New Year's resolution? What are you doing? You're resolving to get better at something, aren't you? It's like there's something in my life, and I want to notch it up. I want to be better at it. And so just by that definition, getting better at something that we've resolved to do, that's going to be hard work. It's going to require grit and determination and sacrifice. It could be a little bit painful. It's just flat out hard. What's true for our resolutions is actually true in life, isn't it? Like our whole life. Because I I think that we would all agree on this, that we all want to be better, right? We want to do things better in our life. We want to be better people. We're constantly all the time wanting to notch up our game. We want to be better. 
In fact, I would imagine that for most of us who are here, sorry if you got dragged here this morning, okay, but for most of us who are here on our own free will and volition, that part of the reason why we're here is because we want to be better people. And we're hoping that something that happens in the midst of a church service might help us to be better people and live better lives. And that's true whether you believe in God or whether you're still figuring things out, no matter where you are on your journey. We all want to be better people, right? But if we're going to be really honest, we don't always want to do the hard work it takes to get there. Would you admit that with me this morning? We don't always want to do the hard work it takes to be better. It's a great idea in theory, but when it comes right down to it, sometimes we just don't want to. So um, today we are going to take a look at a story that was written over 2,500 years ago. And it's a story of a guy, and it's not clear from the story whether this guy actually had any interest in getting better. But what is clear is he had absolutely no interest in doing the hard work it takes to get there. This is the story of a guy named Jonah. And if you've grown up in church, if you're familiar with the Bible, you're familiar with this name because uh, you're like, oh yeah, Jonah. Isn't that like Jonah and the whale, the guy that the whale swallowed up for, and he was like in the belly of the whale for three days and then the whale spit him out. And I remember Jonah. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Okay. Yes, this is the Jonah. And um, before some of you immediately tune me out and say, you know what? This is my problem with the Bible. This is, this is my issue with some of this stuff because, you know, there's no way that that possibly could have happened. I mean, there's no no way he could have been inside the belly of a whale for three days and survived. And so I just, I, I'm not even going to listen today. All right. Just before you, before you completely tune out, let me just give you something to think about. Okay. Whether you believe that this story of Jonah is a literal historical account or whether you believe that it's a parable, the point is the same. The moral of the story is the same. And the application for all of us in our lives as people who want to get better, want to be better, is the same, regardless of how you read and interpret the story. So we're going to jump in, and I hope you'll just stay with me and stay open to uh, what you might learn from this story. So uh, chapter one, right in the beginning, it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So lots to unpack here in these first couple of verses. So a little background on Jonah. Jonah is Jewish. He is part of the nation of Israel. And so the Israelites are this God-fearing nation. They're doing their best to follow God and obey God's commands and live good lives. And um, that's in stark contrast to this city of Nineveh. The Ninevites are really just a wicked, horrible, corrupt people. They don't fear God at all, and man, their practices are just horrific. And so God says to Jonah, he says, I want you to preach against the city of Nineveh. And basically what God is telling Jonah, and this all becomes clear later in the story, is that basically God wants Jonah to issue a wake-up call. He is trying to issue a warning to the Ninevites that you've got to make some changes. This is crazy. And so it says that Jonah hears this. Now we're in verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord, and he headed for Tarshish, which is completely in the opposite direction. 
He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So, what is the deal? It seems like Jonah has very clearly heard from God, I want you to go to Nineveh, and he promptly decides to go to Tarshish. So you're like, okay, what's the deal with Jonah? Is he afraid? Is there something about that city that just makes him tremble? Is, what's going on? Is, is there a tremendous anxiety around that? Well, actually, what we find is that it's nothing to do with fear at all. But Jonah, and we read this as we go on in the story, Jonah hates the Ninevites. And he is not interested at all in issuing them a warning so they wouldn't be destroyed. He actually wants to see them get destroyed. Nothing would make him happier than seeing this horrible, awful, corrupt city go down to destruction. And so here's what's going on in Jonah's mind. This is just a little background in case you're not all that familiar with, uh, with the, the Israelites and the, and the Jewish people of what we call today the Old Testament. Um, the deal was that this group of people, they were a chosen people. God had chosen them. They were special in the eyes of God. And so Jonah, as one of these chosen people, had basically gotten to a place where he believed because he was chosen— that he was then better than those who weren't chosen. And so what happens is, when he sees people doing things that are absolutely not in accordance with what he knows to be right and true, he immediately looks down with condescension and with judgment and with hate. And uh, this really is a picture of what had happened to the Israelites as a nation. They were just looking down in judgment and condemnation on this other nation. I'm sure glad that the church has never done that in our history, right? Um, so, so God sees Jonah, and he sees the hate that's in this man's heart. And he says, you know what? You're the perfect guy to go to Nineveh and issue a warning to them. You are going to go to Nineveh. And so he sends him that way, and what, is, what does Jonah do? He promptly goes the exact opposite way to Tarshish. So, he gets in a boat, and, and if you've heard the story before, I'll do a quick uh, summary of what happens next. So Jonah gets in this boat. They go out to sea. He's going in the exact opposite direction, and God sends a massive storm. Jonah ends up being thrown overboard, and he's swallowed up in the belly of a giant fish. We're not necessarily sure it was a whale, but whatever it was describes this giant fish. And um, inside the belly of that fish, um, you could say Jonah has a little come-to-Jesus uh, session there, cries out to God, and after a period of a few days, he is spat out onto dry land. And so we pick it up now in chapter 3. It says, then, just been spit out of this giant fish, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. It says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. It's funny how God has a way of getting our attention when he wants to, you know? Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Check out what happens next. It says, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. 
Now, sackcloth was this very coarse material. It was often made out of goat hair. And you would put it on, and it would be right up against your skin, and it was pretty much the most irritating, abrasive thing that you could put on. And what it was a way of, of showing, of demonstrating in a very real, tangible way in the ancient world was that you were so sorry for either what happened or what you did. So the Ninevites, by putting on this sackcloth, were basically saying, we completely repent. We, are, we turn from our wicked ways. We, we, we are so incredibly sorry. Skipping a couple of verses to verse 10, it says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Now, I just want you to appreciate how honest, how brutally honest this prayer is, man. I mean, if you've never thought that the Bible has some interesting stuff in it, check this out. So this is an actual prayer that Jonah prays that is, that is written in the Bible. Jonah prays, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. You know what's so striking about this? You have this incredibly corrupt, wicked nation doing despicable things, Right? I mean, there's so much evil in this city. But here you have this prayer that really shows just the true nature of where Jonah is right now. And what's fascinating to me is as evil as Nineveh is, Jonah's heart is equally evil. There's so much hate. If they're not going to be literally destroyed, Jonah wants to die. Do you see how violent and how evil that is? That's a problem. So it says, chapter 4, verse 4, but the Lord replied to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Then verse 11, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? And also many animals. And with those words, God has the last word. The story ends right there. And I don't know about you, but it just kind of leaves me wanting a little bit. I'm I'm a little frustrated with the story of Jonah, if I could be honest. Because, of course, the thing that's going through my brain is what? What happens to Jonah? I mean... So Jonah gets sent, doesn't want to go, runs away, then he goes, and he makes this proclamation, the the people all repent, it's great. They turn from their wicked ways. No, he's furious, cries out to God, and God says, this is my right. How could you possibly say this? And then, boom, mic drop, we're done. Story's over. What? What happens to Jonah? What, What happens to him? We don't know. We don't know. No idea. What we do know is that God saw the state of Jonah's heart. He saw the hate, the condemnation, the judgment in Jonah's heart. And he said, I'm going to do something about this. We know that God wanted to change Jonah 
for the better. And really, Jonah represents the state of that nation, the Israelites, and what they had fallen into. Their, their, their whole way of thinking was completely flawed. And so now we don't know what happened to Jonah. We don't. But the message from the story of Jonah is clear. And this is the message that God was delivering to Jonah. It was also the message that God was delivering to the nation of Israel. And in many ways, it's still the message that we need to hear today. And this is what it was. And you remember, this is God's chosen people, okay? The nation of Israel, these were God's chosen people. God said to them, I have chosen you to be this great people. And so here was the message. God wants them to know, and Jonah to know, I didn't choose you to, to be better than the world, okay? That's not why I chose you. Didn't choose you to make you better than the world. I chose you to make the world better. Let me say that one more time. God's message is, I didn't choose you to make you better than the world. I chose you to make the world better. Because if we go all the way back to this nation's beginning with this guy named Abraham, God makes a promise to this guy, Abraham. And he says, you're going to have so many descendants. I'm going to make you into a whole nation. And you will be blessed to be a blessing. The nation of Israel and Jonah had completely lost sight of that. Thought they were better than everybody else. But instead, God says, I chose you to make you better. So here's the thing. Why did God want to change Jonah so badly? And the nation of Israel, why did he want to change them for the better? Well, the answer is because this is fundamentally who God is. We have been going through this series, Trust Issues, studying all these different names that we see for God when we look back in the the Hebrew language, all these different names for God that tell us things about God so that we can trust God more. If we can push into who God is, we can trust God more. And um, so one of the names that I want to take a look at today is the name Jehovah Mekadishkim. And um, that literally means the Lord who sanctifies. So you have the word Jehovah, which means Lord, and Mekadishkim, which means to sanctify or to make holy. So it's this idea of the Lord who sanctifies, the Lord who makes us holy, the Lord who makes us better. And we see this name in a couple of places in the Hebrew scriptures. And one of them I'll read for you. It's Exodus chapter 31, verses uh, 12 and 13. And this, this is the account of the Israelites being delivered from slavery in Egypt. And Moses is, uh, is the leader. And this is what it says. It says, um, the Lord then said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come. So you may know that I am Jehovah Mekadishkim. That's what it says in the Hebrew. But in the English, it says, so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy or the Lord who sanctifies you. And so basically what God, by being named this name, calling himself this name, is basically saying to his people, the nation of Israel, is that my will for you is to sanctify you. It's to make you holy. It's to make you better people. It's fascinating to me. There are so many of us, and the big question, spiritually speaking, is 
what is God's will for my life? You know, I'm just trying to figure out, is this God's will? Is this the thing that God has for me? Maybe you can think of a time where you ask that question. Maybe you're asking that question right now in some area of your life. There's something you're pressing into God. God, is this your will? Well, we see that according to the Hebrew scriptures, according to this name of God, that it's God's will that we would be sanctified, made holy. Let's check out if there's anything we can find in the New Testament. And actually, we find um, one of the Apostle Paul's letters, who is arguably the greatest follower of Jesus who ever lived, a brilliant scholar, a brilliant theologian, wrote much of the New Testament. And we find in a letter that he wrote to the church in Thessalonica called uh, 1 Thessalonians, Chapter 4, verse 3, we see him write these words. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. So if you've been wrestling, like, God, what is your will? What is your will? I'm trying to figure out God's will for my life. At the risk of oversimplifying things a little bit, let me just say this. It might not actually be that it's God's will for you to win the lottery or that it's God's will for you to end up marrying that super hot girl or guy that um, won't even talk to you right now. And it may not be God's will for you to land the dream job of all dream jobs. But what I can tell you clearly is that it absolutely is God's will that you would be sanctified, that you would be made holy, that you would be made better as a person. And in very practical terms, in church language, what does this look like? It really looks like becoming more like Jesus Christ. And um, for those of you who absolutely hate New Year's resolutions, either because you failed miserably, like I did, or because you just don't even make them, because you're like, this is crazy, it's stupid, January 1st, it's so arbitrary, why should I you know, have this imposed on me once a year? It's ridiculous. Well, the good news is that um, God's not interested in January 1st or New Year's resolutions. This is an everyday thing. This is an all-the-time thing. God's will is that every single day of our lives, we would wake up, and we, with God's help, would be becoming better people. We'd be becoming more like Jesus. That is God's will for every single one of us. And so I want to issue a challenge to you, and we've been um, kind of filling in one action item uh, pretty much every week of this series. And so today, I want to challenge you to trust God to make you better. Trust God, if you want to fill that in, trust God to make you better. If God truly is the God whose character it is to make us better, then we've got to trust God to actually do that, don't we? We've got to be willing. And here's the question that I want you to really wrestle with this morning. When it comes to your life, do you really want God to make you better? I mean, the quick answer is always yes, right? But honestly, be honest for a second. When it comes to your life right now, thinking particularly in the areas you struggle with, Maybe an area where, maybe like Jonah, you kind of want to run the other direction. Do you really honestly want God to make you better? Or would you rather just run the other way? That 
is a huge question. Because if we don't want God to make us better, God respects us and loves us enough to say, you know what? It's cool. I'm right here whenever you want to, but I'm not going to force that on you. Now, some of you may be here this morning and um, you're having like a really awful feeling running through you right now because you're sitting here going, okay, um, so if it's really God's will for me, that I am to be sanctified. Like I'm supposed, that's, you know, you mean like being a saint? Like I'm supposed to be made holy. I'm supposed to be this great person. Like if that's God's will for my life, that I am completely hosed, okay? And and you may be feeling that way right now. Like I'm, I'm hosed. There's no way. In fact, Derek, if you knew me, if you knew the kinds of things that I'm struggling with, if you knew some of the stuff that I have done in my life, you'd realize I shouldn't even be here right now. Like, I am completely 100% hosed if this is God's will for my life. You know what I want to say to you? West Falls Church, online. You know I want to say to you guys? If you think you're hosed right now, that's you. I want to say, Congratulations. Congratulations. Because you get what so many church-going, religious people never get. And that is, we are hosed. You see, if you want to imagine with me for a minute a big ladder, just imagine there's a ladder right here on the stage, okay? There is no way through what we do, no matter how good we want to try and be, okay, there's no way that we can climb that religious ladder and work our way up to this standard that God has for holiness and sanctification. There's no way we will ever be on that same level with God's standard. It's impossible. We actually are hosed. And so here's why I say Congratulations, if you feel that way. Because it is only through that realization that there's, there's no way I can be a good enough person. It's only through being hosed that we can actually, we're ready to grasp what Jesus came to proclaim. This is crazy, but Jesus basically came to proclaim one thing. There's no ladder. You see, when he came, everybody's just climbing their ladder. Everyone's doing all their religious gymnastics. Everybody's trying to do what they can to be these great, holy, righteous people. And Jesus' whole message is basically, you can't. It's impossible. Read the Sermon on the Mount sometime. You cannot do it. There's a standard, and we cannot get there. And so Jesus says, there's no ladder. It's not about climbing our way up to heaven. In fact, in fact, when you try, when you try and do all the things that you can do, you you know who you end up like, right? You end up like Jonah. So Jonah, he was doing a lot of these right religious things. And you know where that left him? Thinking that he was better than everybody else. He now was filled with so much judgment and conceit and arrogance and condemnation. 
and he saw himself as so much better. He saw 120,000 people and he literally wanted them obliterated. Why? Because when you climb the ladder, guess what, guys? You're up here on the ladder. All of a sudden, you're entitled to a whole bunch of great stuff from God, aren't you? Right? Aren't you? I mean, you're in church today. Wow, that's awesome. Certainly, God's going to do something cool today. Sunday should be a good day, right? We get up on that ladder. But the reality is, there is no ladder. God loves us all the same. God's grace extends to everybody. And so what Jesus is saying is, guys, there's no ladder. You can't go up to God's level. Jesus says, I came down to put on human flesh and do what you cannot do so that you would actually not have to climb a ladder, but you'd be accepted and loved just as you are. It's crazy. It's scandalous. And the only way we can grasp it, you guys, the only way we can grasp it is when we realize we're hosed. We realize the ladder could never reach up that high. And so here's the cool part, the really cool part, because it's like, oh man, I feel so bad. There's no way. God wants to make me sanctified. God wants to make me holy. I can never, I can never be as good of a person as God wants me to be. Yes, you're, you're correct. You're correct. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus already did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus said, yep, don't even try. Don't even get on the ladder. I've already been up there. I've come down. You're good. All you have to do is just say thank you. That's all you have to do. Thank you, Jesus, for doing what I couldn't do. And Jesus says, you're good just as you are. You're completely loved. You're completely accepted. You're good. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the good news. We can't even begin to understand it unless we first realize I'm hosed. Now, here's the really awesome thing about God, and this is the hard part, okay? The easy part is, thank you, Jesus, you're good, okay? Here's the hard part. It's because God loves us so much. It's because God wants the very, very best for us that God says, yes, I love you just as you are. Yes, I accept you just as you are. But I love you so much. I want the best for you that I want you to be better in this life. And that's where it gets hard. Because even though we're good right now, in God's eyes, we are. God says, yes, but you can become more. You can live this life well. There's certain things you're doing and you're hurting yourself. And I want the best for you. I love you. And so God wants to make us better. So, Here's just kind of a statement that I, I want you to, to, to think about that will kind of sum this point up. The process of God making us better in this life isn't about climbing a ladder. It's about walking with Jesus. So there's no religious ladder we have to get up. We're actually all on the same level. We're just walking with Jesus. And as we walk with Jesus, Jesus makes us better. Now, that might sound very spiritual. Oh, walking with Jesus, that's awesome. What does that even look like? What does that even mean? I'm glad you asked, all right? So what that basically means, if you have no idea, okay, how would I even walk with Jesus? I'm not even sure I believe in Jesus. How, can I walk with Jesus? Yes, yeah, go ahead. It's cool. He just says, follow me. So here's what you do. You get a Bible or you go online and you, you look up a Bible app or something and, um, and you just read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's four accounts of Jesus' life. You just pick any one of them, okay? Pick one. And you read through uh, the account and you simply start doing what Jesus says. 
It's that simple. That is walking with Jesus. You start doing what Jesus says. He's teaching things. You say, okay, I'm open. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start applying those things. That's it, all right? Now, let me get super practical for a second, all right? Super, super practical. So if we are interested in becoming better people, and really that means walking with Jesus, I'm going to give you one thing, one very practical thing that you can do, and many of you are already doing this, but, but there are, are, are many of us who aren't, okay? And so here's the deal. If you read through the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, what you see is that Jesus was really about one thing, and that was serving. He came to serve. In fact, he was described as a servant who humbled himself and made himself the lowest of all low servants. That is what he literally gave his life for was to serve this world and to serve everybody that he encountered. I think it's not a reach to say that Jesus was all about service in his life. So you may be aware that we are in the midst of uh, doing our team signups here at Grace. And this is Arlington, West Falls Church, and Grace Live Online. Um, So Basically, what teams are at Grace is they are service opportunities. They are ways to get involved and to serve the church. Now, there's lots of amazing things you can do to serve, and just about all of us are serving somewhere in our lives in some capacity, okay, formally or informally. But here's what I just want to say for a second, okay? Jesus came to establish his church, and Jesus came with, in my opinion— what is the greatest message that has ever been shared in this world? And I think in light of everything that's going on in our world today, in our nation today, the brokenness, the, just the chaos, the, the, the stuff that is happening, this is a world that maybe more than ever is desperate to know that there is a God who loves you There is a God who wants the best for you. And Jesus established his church to proclaim that message, you guys. And so here's just what I want to let you know. All of these different uh, volunteer teams we have at Grace, they are simply about one thing. They are an attempt to amplify this message, to allow this message to go forth. And every single person and every team that's involved at Grace Community Church helps to proclaim this incredible message of God's love for this world. And so I just want to encourage you. If you're here and you're like, yeah, you know, I do want to get better. I mean, I want to be a better person and, um, and I get it. You know, God wants me to be better. Super practical. You can go, you, you've got the information on how to do this, but you basically just go to our website, trygrace.org slash events, and you can sign up today, okay? This isn't a plea, so we'll get more people on our volunteer teams. I promise you it's not. It's just a super easy, practical application way to, to do this. Because once you start serving, you just you start rubbing shoulders with some amazing people, and all of a sudden, life seems to be just a little bit less about me and a little bit more about how I can serve and what I can do. And it's just amazing. That process of becoming better starts to happen. So um, what I would just like to, to say is kind of a concluding remark, and then we're going to pray, is that no matter where you find yourself on the spiritual spectrum, okay? If the, if the spiritual spectrum is one to 10, 
you might be at a nine out of 10. We're like, you pretty much got it all rolling, okay? And if you're a nine, that's awesome, okay? And you're just, you're, you, you can say, yeah, I, I just, I want to get to a 10. Maybe you're here and you're at a negative nine, okay? Maybe somebody dragged you here. You don't believe any of this. You're sitting here with your arms crossed and you're super skeptical. But here's the thing. No matter where we are in our spiritual journey, couldn't we all agree that we want a better life? Don't we want that? We all want the better life. And you know, no matter where you are in your belief, in a lot of ways, we're all the same in the sense that, okay, we want this better life, and so what do we do? We try our best every day to be great people, don't we? And we kind of believe, Christian or not, you know, we, we believe that we're going we're gonna to do our best, and, and maybe we pray, or maybe we just hope, and maybe we're, we're praying or hoping that, that, that God's going to reward us for the things that we do, or maybe we just hope that the universe is going to reward us for the things we do. But nonetheless, we try and live the best lives we can, and we kind of hope that, you know, these good things happen to us, that good things are bestowed upon us, that we, you know, these great relationships, you know, people, you know, God brings good people into our lives, or the universe gives you that great job, or, or whatever it is, you know, you have good health, all these different things. But if you really stop and think about it, the better life isn't actually what happens to us. It's what happens in us. And the research actually bears this out. That the better life isn't what happens to us. It's what happens in us. I remember hearing a Harvard researcher after like 15 years of research, a guy by the name of Sean Acor was talking about happiness, you know, this better life. And his big thing was that only 10% of your happiness is, is to, due to external factors. 10%. 90%. 90 is what happens in us. So the better life, it's not, it's not what happens to us. It's what happens in us. It's actually as we walk with Jesus, as we become better people, that is where we take hold of the better life. But here's the question. When it comes to your life, do you really want God to make you better? Honestly, do you really want God to make you better? Because it's hard. But I promise you, it's worth it. Let's pray. God, uh, thank you so much for loving us just as we are. And help us to trust you to make us better. Amen.